It can work across many kinds of trauma because it's getting to a root cause. And because it creates this opening that allows people to process, and it also is having an effect on the brain. MDMA is a heart opener. It heightens feelings of connection, and it reduces fear activity in the brain. It's a synthetic compound known as an empathogen for its ability to generate empathy. And for these reasons, when given in conjunction with therapy, MDMA has the potential to be an incredible healing tool. This is Business Trip, a podcast about psychedelic entrepreneurship. And in this episode, Matthias and I chat with Amy Emerson, the CEO of MAPS Public Benefit Corporation, who will be commercializing MDMA-assisted therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. The MAPS Public Benefit Corporation, also called the PBC, is a wholly owned subsidiary of MAPS, the nonprofit, who researches and educates about the careful use of psychedelics and marijuana. The profits of the PBC will be funneled back into MAPS, the nonprofit, for further research. Here's a quick history of MDMA and how MAPS and the PBC came to be. MDMA was first synthesized by Merck in 1912 with the intent to treat blood clots. But it wasn't until the 1960s when chemist Alexander Shulgin discovered MDMA's heart-opening and healing properties. Shulgin thought the drug could be effective in therapy, so he shared it with Jungian psychotherapist Leo Zeff, who introduced MDMA to an estimated 4,000 therapists who administered 500,000 doses in therapeutic settings across North America. Then, in the 1980s, MDMA started being used in the rave and party scene, which is when the DEA decided to classify it as a Schedule One substance, which is defined as a drug having no medical use and a high abuse potential. A year later, in 1986, Rick Doblin founded MAPS, which stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Through MAPS's efforts, and having raised over $100 million to date, MAPS has funded dozens of clinical trials studying MDMA's therapeutic effects, and is now in phase three clinical trials for MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. MAPS's most recent trial in 2021 showed a 67% efficacy rate of treating PTSD, and the therapy could be approved by FDA as soon as 2023. In this episode, we'll start by talking about the ins and outs of MAPS's protocol and the strategy behind their clinical trials. We'll also discuss other conditions MDMA might be able to treat. Amy also shares her thoughts on the state of the industry, patents, as well as how to prioritize accessibility to bring MDMA-assisted therapy to populations who need it most. I'm Greg Kubin, and I'll be hosting this episode with Matthias Serebrinsky. And now, to the episode. I'd love to kick off the conversation around why MDMA is such an effective healing tool, especially in conjunction with psychotherapy. There's multiple reasons why it's so effective, and it's not just the MDMA. It's the MDMA in combination with the therapy that makes it so powerful, right? The MDMA creates the opening, and then it allows the therapy to be more effective. So you could look at it from a couple of ways in that, one, the way it affects the brain, and so there's an effect on the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. That's exactly the opposite of what's happening with PTSD. So 
you know, you're in flight or fright and hypervigilance when you have PTSD. And so that's an increase in activity in the amygdala, a decrease in prefrontal cortex. And with the MDMA, that switches. So people move into a more what we call a window of tolerance that is not hyper or hypovigilant, which those are two places that people tend to be with PTSD. And so you get into this window of tolerance, you have the right set and setting, the right mindset, as well as the right physical setting. You have a sense of increased safety and increased empathy for yourself and an increased trust in the people in the room being your therapists. And so these are all all issues with PTSD. When you have PTSD, these are you know, trust and fear, not being in a safe setting, not even being present in the moment, right? A lot of times people are back in their trauma. So all of these things open up when you take MDMA, and then that allows the person to access kind of their own inner healing intelligence. And really, the therapy session is guided by where the patient or the participant in the clinical trial is going to kind of unravel their relationship with this trauma. And the therapists are in the room to then support it and keep it moving along and help people to understand the insights that they're getting. And then that gets solidified more in the integration sessions, which are also like the non-drug sessions are extremely important for making this healing connection. So there's the physical aspects of what people experience with the MDMA, and there's what's happening in the brain at the same time. And then there's also, you know, neurohormones that are being affected as well. It works well on many levels. <laughs> when you're describing it, it sounds like a wonder drug. <laughs> Uh, and just in its multidisciplinary approach to healing, uh, I suppose. Um, it is and, not and a wonder drug. I, okay. I mean, it is a tool, but I just want to be careful because I know that sometimes a message gets out there to people like, this is like this magic thing and I'm going to do this and I'm going to have healing, but it's an incredible amount of work for the patient or the participant to go through and they have to really, they're part of the set and setting. Their willingness to go there and do the difficult work is a huge part of this and it is not um, a magic pill that you're going to take and uh, have your trauma go away. But it is amazing on this other aspect, which I think is what you were referring to, is that it can work across many kinds of trauma. Um, because it's getting to a root cause and because it creates this opening that allows people to process. And it also is having an effect on the brain and on your chemistry. We feel like there's going to be more applications than just PTSD. And we have pilot studies going and other indications. Like if the underlying cause is related to trauma, then we think that MDMA is likely to work in other indications as well besides just PTSD. And so I think it would also be helpful if briefly you could share what the current MAPS protocol is. Yes. Uh, and then if you'd like, I'd love to touch on what you think those other indications could be. So in the clinical trial, it's a randomized clinical trial and people are either in the control group, which is a placebo plus therapy, or they're in the MDMA plus therapy arm. So not a true placebo in the fact that also the therapy is effective, right? So our control arm is a placebo plus therapy. And there's three 90-minute preparatory sessions with participants when they come in for the clinical trial. And this is for them to get to know the therapist and the therapist to get to know the participant, understand a little bit about the trauma and really explain what's going to happen 
make sure that there's really clear understanding and commitment and consent. And then there's three eight-hour sessions that are what we call in the clinical trial experimental sessions, but this would be the active drug plus therapy sessions or in a clinical trial setting, your comparator plus therapy. So there's three of these. They're about eight hours and they're one month apart approximately. So we usually have a window of three to five weeks. So after each one of those sessions, patients either spend the night and they kind of start their integrative process there, or in some of our places, they go home if they have a safe setting to go home to, and that feels comfortable for both the patient and the therapists. And then the next morning, they have their first integration. So we really want to talk to them right the day after so that they can really hone in on what the insights are that they had during that session. And then there's two more integrative sessions prior to having another MDMA session. So it's always three times that you do a non-drug session, one drug session, three non-drug sessions, drug session, right? So you just have this, this kind of repeated three times. And that happens over about 15 to 18 weeks. The data that I've seen from the most recent study is pretty promising. 67%, I believe, of the patients did not have PTSD uh, diagnosis after the treatment. Yes, it's uh, about two-thirds of the people in the MDMA group no longer qualify for having a PTSD diagnosis, and 88% of the people had a clinically significant response to the treatment, meaning some of them may still have a diagnosis, but their severity is dramatically decreased. One dynamic that I'm interested to learn more about is the relationship with the FDA and working with them for years, having this open line of conversation. Could you kind of speak to what it's like working with FDA on this kind of trial? Yeah, the relationship has really changed and formed over many years. So Rick Doblin that founded MAPS started that relationship with the FDA it was like either late 90s or early 2000s. I got involved in 2003 and I was involved beginning from our very first study, but MAPS had already had the protocol approved by the FDA when I met them, but hadn't started any of the studies and were still involved in getting ethics review. So the relationship with FDA, thankfully, in our FDA review group, so Psychiatric Products is our review group. And the head of psychiatric products at that time was Tom Loughran, who's now retired and one of our advisors. He really was incredibly helpful in making sure that FDA put science before politics. There was a lot of pressure in those early days to not approve this research for political reasons. And Tom Loughran really went to bat to make sure that science was put above politics and that these studies were reviewed and held to the same standards that any new drug coming to the FDA would be held to. So that was a really important part of our relationship. And Tom was the head of our psychiatric products group for pretty much through our phase two program. And we had a very good open dialogue with FDA. And when they didn't understand something or when there was part of a protocol that needed discussion, we would have a meeting with them and discuss it. It was collaborative in those ways. When Tom retired, it did feel like our review group changed and we had to kind of rebuild that relationship and that trust with the new people on the team. And that's taken a little bit more time. But during that, we also did get breakthrough therapy designation with the review group that we have. So that was a huge vote of confidence that was based on all of our phase two data. And we have finished our end of phase two meeting and we got approval with FDA for our phase 
three, as well as something called special protocol assessment, which we means we pre-negotiated what our statistical analysis plan and primary endpoints would be. Some companies don't go through that process. It's like an extra six months or more of negotiating with FDA, but it helps to give you confidence that you all, you both sides really agree on how you're going to analyze your data and that if you hit these certain safety endpoints and efficacy endpoints, you're very likely to get approved as long as nothing changes, right? And because we had a really good sense of what our data looked like, you know, because of the history of MDMA before we even started with this, as well as all of our phase two data, we had a pretty good sense of how our data would look and what we would need to do to analyze it. And so it felt very comfortable to pre-negotiate with this with FDA. Now, sometimes companies are working with something much newer and things can go sideways during phase three studies and you don't want to like negotiate yourself into a corner. So that's why some companies don't do it. They don't feel like it's worth the extra time ahead of time. They'd rather just move through and negotiate at the end. Amy, can you explain what breakthrough therapy designation is? Yes, it's when a treatment seems to be promising for an unmet medical need for which there isn't an adequate treatment. And based on the preliminary data that you have, this looks to be an improvement over or a treatment for something where there isn't an approved treatment in a life-threatening illness. I'm reflecting on what you mentioned of building this relationship with the FDA, and I'm curious how much had to do with the fact that MDMA is a controlled substance, it's related to the war on drugs, and how much it is related to the fact that MDMA therapy is an experiential medicine, right? Like it's not about the drug itself, it's about the therapy. And uh, I'm thinking that that might be something that it's harder for the FDA to wrap their heads around. Yeah. So initially, the political issues with trying to get these studies approved was definitely related to this being a Schedule One drug with complicated interactions with DEA because of this and then with FDA. So that affected the ability to get this program initially approved. Working with a Schedule One drug that has a lot of misinformation out there is, a, is definitely a hurdle that a lot of people don't have to jump through. And then having it be combined with a the therapy. FDA doesn't regulate therapy. So there, you know, this had to be something that we all wrapped our heads around with. Like, what is a label for a drug plus therapy going to say if a drug is approved when FDA doesn't regulate therapy? And this was something that we had to kind of go back and forth with FDA on. And even in our comparator group, that really our comparator arm is a placebo plus therapy, which is, again, outside of FDA's area. So there was a lot of educating ourselves on both sides of the table as we worked through study designs and what the phase three program would be this education that you did for yourselves and also for FDA, it's paved the way to all the new companies in the psychedelic medicine space that are also pursuing a type of therapy that is a drug plus therapy itself. And so all these companies are, are standing on the shoulders of MAPS yeah. in many ways. One other question I had around MDMA, I mentioned it before, but you talked about potentially other indications outside of PTSD. Can you speak to other you know, indications, other programs that you guys may greenlight? Yeah. First, I want to say that you know one of the things with PTSD is that it comes with a lot of comorbid conditions, childhood trauma, alcohol, substance use disorders, depression, suicidal ideation, dissociation. Uh, there's all these 
pieces that are also complex that are part of uh, PTSD. So as we started to work on our PTSD studies, we also could see if some of these, if there was improvements in these other areas, which we do see on all of these areas, we see an improvement. Now it's a little hard to untangle. Is it because the PTSD is resolving and these were symptoms of the PTSD or were these also standalone issues that are also resolving independently? So it gave us a signal. So there's a few things that we've been looking at. One is substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder. Uh, ben Sessa in the UK has done some initial kind of pilot studies around alcohol use disorder with positive results. And we have seen in our PTSD studies positive changes in use disorders. Again, resolving partly as part of the PTSD symptoms, but maybe a standalone thing. So that's something we'd like to look into. We also see improvements in depression on the depression inventory, the BDI. We see the same type of curve, the same kind of response that we see with PTSD severity. We see the same thing with depression, but we haven't done a standalone depression study. We've done a study in social anxiety in autistic adults. I think next we would look at just social anxiety. Doesn't matter um, in autistic adults, just general population and autistic adults, you know, anybody that's suffering from social anxiety disorder. Anxiety related to having an end of life illness. We have a pilot study that was completed in that that showed MDMA to be very helpful. And then and we're looking at eating disorders. Eating disorders are such a huge area that hasn't had any innovation for a long time. And then we're working with Boston Consulting Group to assess further what our pipeline could look like. So we have these certain signals and then we need to be able to prioritize which things would come next after PTSD. Traumatic brain injury is another one. A lot of similarities with PTSD. There's some interesting ideas out there about kind of non-trauma related areas where because of this um, kind of the reopening of the critical period in the brain where maybe recovering from some, this is kind of in the TBI area too, recovering from some neurological issues or if there's injuries could be an area of interest too. Fascinating. I want to go back to the MDMA trials. And I know that in your phase two trials, you explored with different populations. Bessel van der Kolk says that, you know, PTSD, it's just this like umbrella indication, but th there's a lot more subtlety in terms of uh, complex PTSD, PTSD, developmental trauma. So I'm curious what you can share around learnings there. Is MDMA therapy more effective for one of those populations versus another? Yeah. So first, you can even go like a little bit higher level than that before we get into the detail of just like at first, when, when people started doing PTSD research, there was a question of whether it works the same for people with their trauma coming from something, from different things, such as war-related trauma versus other types of trauma. So we did include in our phase two studies that trauma of any type. And we also did then, in addition to that, a study just in vets and first responders that could include firefighters and police officers and vets um, to see if there was any difference in the results that we were getting, and there isn't. We don't see a difference in men and women, and we don't see a difference between vets and the civilian population in the way that we get our results. So then going down in a little bit more into what you're saying is like these types of PTSD, some people maybe have a childhood trauma, and it was thought that having childhood trauma would be really hard to treat, that we wouldn't be able to do it. And also there can be a dissociative type of PTSD. And what we saw in our first phase three 
was that people responded just as well, no matter what. And this was really surprising for Bessel because he was like, maybe you should exclude from your population childhood trauma um, because I think it's going to be really difficult for you to treat that. But we had 30 of our patients had childhood trauma and there was no difference in the treatment groups and we did a subgroup analysis. And then people that had the dissociative type, there was only, there was a smaller number, but we saw that they had, if you looked I think the ends are too small to really say this with certainty, but we saw that they actually even did better in our study when compared to the non-dissociative group. So we really feel like we've done a good job in our studies of including as much as possible, as much as that what FDA will allow you to, what the general PTSD population looks like. So this isn't just you know one narrow slice of people with PTSD. It's all types of complex and severe PTSD with all the ranges of how did you get your PTSD and what age did it happen? What was the minimum age for entering into the studies? You have to be 18 to enter into the study. We do have a commitment with FDA that we will have to look at pediatric populations um, post-approval. That's a requirement for all drug development programs. It's very taboo, right, to even think about kids taking MDMA. Uh, and at the same time, children take all types of drugs today. And so I'm curious on, on what are your thoughts around MDMA for a pediatric population? Yeah, you know, this is something that Rick has always been very adamant, even before FDA said, well, you have to do that anyway, that it was important to be able to look at a pediatric population because you want to try to treat trauma as close to when it happens as possible, especially in a pediatric population. Your brain starts to actually develop differently if you have had trauma and you haven't been able to resolve it. So we can allow people to move into adulthood without unresolved trauma and allow their brain to develop more normally the closer in time that we can work with them. So I think this is really important. And when we got to the end of our phase two program and we were meeting F with FDA, they said, okay, you have to have your pediatric plan. <laughs> I think we, we kind of thought, well, this is gonna be so taboo that they're just gonna um, kind of give us an exception and they'll say, you're waived from having to do this. And like, then we'll have to be the ones that put it forward and say, no, we want to do this. So FDA required it and we already have the plan approved and it will go down in a stepwise fashion. And the boundary for how young do you go is how young can you measure PTSD with the measures that exist now? And how young can you actually, like, what's the population that you can treat for PTSD? So at first, we'll go down into, I think it's um, 11 to 18. And then we'll see how that goes. And then we'll go down probably to 7 to 11. But this is going to be years into the future. We'll have a lot more information then. We have to do some PK work to make sure of the dosing. Uh, but this is what FDA expects from us. My mind is blown. <laughs> yeah, ours was too. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned before to my question about the different indications, it seems like there's a, a wide variety of them. So what comes to my mind is like, okay, well, you're going to need to fund additional studies to see those through. And so to me, it was like, okay, feels like a good time in the conversation for us to change gears, to talk 
business. And in particular, you know, from your model of having both MAPS and the Public Benefit Corporation and the interplay between the two, to me, is super interesting. I would love for you to kind of talk through how the two work together and is part of the idea that as you're able to start commercializing your therapies, you can then fund future studies, whether commercial or research, right? You got it, Greg. I don't even have to explain it to you. (laughs) Yeah, so I think just in case people don't know, MAPS is the nonprofit and MAPS PBC, of which I'm the CEO of, is a wholly owned subsidiary of the nonprofit. And MAPS PBC is a public benefit corporation. And we really wanted to be able to do this drug development as close to a nonprofit context as possible. It made sense that we would form a for-profit in order to really take this through the end of the drug development and into commercialization. But we wanted to have protection around it, that it would be done the way we imagined it to be done and differently than what most drug development has happened. So first, we made it owned wholly by a nonprofit. Second, we incorporated as a public benefit corp, which allows us to make our decisions based on public benefit, not profit, just in case we ever did have any other shareholders. Like MAPS is always going to be aligned with this. But if you ever did take shareholders in the company, you want to be protected to make sure that your decisions, your fiduciary responsibility to a shareholder, that we can put public benefit first. So that's our setup. And then Right now, everything's come in to do this drug development from philanthropy. But when we start to commercialize and have revenue coming in, that revenue will go back into MAPS and back into the PBC to make us a sustainable organization uh, and allow us to keep doing more drug development. And then also money from that revenue would go into patient access programs because, again, public benefit and patient access are part of, you know, such a strong part of what our mission is about. You spoke about accessibility being a priority, a value, if you will. Can we talk about that a little bit? Like whether it's how you intend on pricing the therapy, the discussions that you've been having with payers on the insurance side, and, you know, stuff around working with underserved communities, like it seems like you guys are really mindful about your approach. So I'd love to dig into that a bit more. I wanted to say something about we want this approved as a therapy, like as a package, right? So it's MDMA plus therapy. It's really important to us that that's how it gets approved. And it's really important that that's how payers view it. But I want to be clear that the PBC will only set the price of part of the package, and that is related to the drug. We don't get to set the price for therapy. We can have what we would like, and we can have guidelines, but that's gonna come from the individual providers, and it's also gonna come probably from the negotiations with payers as how payers look at this package and how much they will cover for the therapy and for two therapists to be in the room, and which is all of this negotiation of what this looks like as a package is really complex. We need new codes for payers in order to really ensure that this is covered in an adequate way. And that's the first part of accessibility is making sure that that happens. And then there's also a patient access program that will need to be created for either underinsured or uninsured people. There's separate programs with the VA and Medicare that have to be negotiated. 
And this has to happen to create accessibility. All of these pieces have to happen. So we're really actively securing payer coverage by having negotiations now with payers um, as through our commercial team that we've been developing. Then there's also reaching through therapist training, therapists that will be connected to underserved communities. You also asked me what we were about setting the price. Price won't get set till much closer. Like setting a price is so complex. And I think we really need to do a lot of storytelling around this because like not only do we care a lot internally, and we also have a very mission-driven company where internally everybody cares and has an opinion about how this is going to look and how it's going to go into the ecosystem. And then we have a lot of supporters that care. Though I've been involved in drug development and clinical research since the early 90s, <laughs> uh, I, I've never been part of the of this discussion, right? It's usually, I, I, I've been more of an R&D person. So I'm learning a lot about commercialization and uh setting drug prices and it is complicated and there isn't one price. There's a price for all of these different groups that I was telling you about. You negotiate with these different payers individually and it's kind of like when you go to buy a car and you have like a price and nobody ever pays that price. It's called a WAC, W-A-C, and that's like what your price is where a drug is set at. It doesn't get set until a lot of this negotiation is done and until you're much closer to commercial. So I don't actually know what the drug price will be. And then I don't, then it will be set. And then there'll be all these negotiations with different payers as to what amount of that they'll actually pay. And then what we really care about is what is people's co-pay going to be? And if they don't have insurance or they're underinsured, what is our patient access program going to provide? So I think that this is something that needs a lot of storytelling. It's really important that people understand it because I think there's going to be a surprise in a lot of people that don't understand when they're going to hear like a whack price and it's going to not seem reasonable, you know, and it's going to be, even if it's completely different than what a normal pharma or biotech company would set a drug price at, it's going to be much lower than that. But I think it's also not going to be $20, right? That people pay, or that people are thinking, well, um, MDMA is really inexpensive to make. And uh, so it's going to be something in between there. And there's a lot of work to figure it out. So I think really important is to have people on, like if you guys want to do this at some point, have people on that can really explain this really complex process. Amy, can you talk a little bit more about the discussion with payers? I'm thinking about other founders working in psychedelic medicine companies and how they approach those negotiations with the VA, Medicare. So I'm curious if you could share a little bit more about learnings and experience there. Yes. So starting payer negotiations is, you know, we did, a, we've done a lot of group with, a lot of work with consulting groups first to kind of understand the landscape and then understand the payers that are important to talk about this with. And it starts now, even though we're not looking at drug approval until 2023, you start now. And first we do it in a blinded way. So there's a group that we work with that goes and talks to payers and they don't say who they're representing. So our name is not brought into it, but they first bring them information without saying, what exactly the drug is, but this is a PTSD treatment and this is the type of results and these are the, this is the type of thing, you know, so I'm sure that the payers with a little bit of Googling can figure out who it is that's being represented to them 
But first, the negotiations happen in kind of this blinded way where you go out and you do these surveys and you, you do this with providers and you do it with payers. And then you start to take that information in and understand what they're looking for and how they're going to approach something new. And then it's really important to have a few groups that you really work closely with that can kind of outline for the industry of you know their peers, this is how you would put a package together. This is how it could be covered. This is how it would make sense for the insurance industry and for the patients. Is MAPS the organization that ultimately decides which clinics can provide MDMA therapy? We would really like a range of providers within this. We are not trying to say this can only happen at institutions or hospitals or only at these like really specialized clinics. We would like there to be a range because we want access and because we think community involvement and community providers are important to access. The way that this would be kind of controlled as to who can do it is partly through therapist training and partly through something called a REMS, the Risk Evaluation Mitigation Strategy. So a REMS is required for any drug that FDA feels like has safety risks or um, diversion risks. And though we think, well, we have safety information that really shows we have an amazing safety profile. So it looks safe and effective. It wouldn't necessarily trigger a REMS program based on our safety profile. Um, And then for diversion, we don't really think there's a diversion issue either because this is a DOT, so a directly observed therapy. So people are not getting the MDMA as a take-home. They're coming to a clinic, they're receiving it under direct observation and in a therapeutic setting. However, because this is a Schedule One drug with a long history, we are positive we are going to have a REMS program. And in that REMS program, you have to train your providers. You have to first train the people that are going to be writing the prescription. So the schedule, it's we don't know what schedule it'll be rescheduled to. It's schedule one now. It's going to be schedule two, three, four, or five, depending on the profile at the time. And this eight-factor analysis that happens with FDA and with us, they'll choose the schedule. So you'll have a schedule license holder. They go through a REMS training program about what does it mean to prescribe this medication. As part of that REMS, we will be asking them, are you working with MAPS-trained therapists? And that's a requirement for us to to sell you this drug. And so then they will be signing that they're doing that. And we will also know who's been through the therapist training program. We're working really hard to expand our therapist training program so that that doesn't become a huge bottleneck. And we're working with different uh, other organizations and universities to help kind of do train the trainer program so that there can be, it's not going to be just like one small set of trainers from MAPS that are able to do this type of training as we go forward into the future. So that's how it's controlled in some way as to who's able to deliver the treatment. When you were talking previously about the protocol, the fact that there will be therapy sessions and then the MDMA therapy sessions, and in total, if my math is correct, this is around 15 sessions total. This will cost a lot of money because of the therapist time. So I'm curious on what are you working on? What uh, strategies do you have to find ways to lower the cost? Yeah. So, well, for one thing, in the clinical trial, it's a three-dose model, but post-approval and depending on what people need, they may choose one, two, or three. So that's one way that there's different types of costs depending on what people need. And then there's also one person in the therapy team needs to be licensed as a therapist. The second person in the room, right now with FTA, it's required that they have a bachelor and that they have training, but they're not required to be a licensed therapist. And we feel that this 
this is really important and something that we want to keep evolving over time is who is that second person? Can they be an intern? We really think that having two people in the room creates more safety. It's also a really long day for the therapist, right? And you need to have a break to use the restroom, to eat something. So, and you never want to leave somebody alone. So having two therapists in the room is practical in those ways, maybe not from a cost perspective, but it's practical in like the length of this it's also really seems to be important for the participant to have both of those people for the therapeutic piece of this, right? They're gonna to relate to different people at different times and they're gonna process with one of the therapists in the room different parts of their trauma, right? There's some projection that needs to happen at times that's very therapeutic. So having two people in the room allows that to happen. So there's an efficacy and a safety and a practical part to this. And the cost piece of it is the difficulty. And I think having someone in the room that can be an intern and that's learning the, the therapy will help to make the cost more reasonable and picking the number of sessions and then having the patient access program and also helping to support through access programs, therapist receiving training as well is going to be important. A couple of ways that also come to mind are group therapy and technologies that can, can help scale. I'm glad you said that, Matthias, because group therapy is something really important to us for scaling and also just for another modality and a way of combining MDMA therapy with other types of existing therapies. And so we are working on a group therapy study currently, and that's something that we want to expand. We need to see, like, what does that look like? Do you do a session individually first and then sessions with the group? Do you do integration as a group, but sessions alone? There's a lot to figure out with group therapy, but it's going to be really important for reaching more people. I think it's going to be really important as we think even bigger and into the future of reaching kind of in Europe migrant populations or people that are traumatized, say, in a natural disaster or in a war where you want to work more closely in time with something happening. And maybe you have people in like a refugee camp or they're being taken care of after a natural disaster. You want to be able to think about how do you have peer support and group therapy. So there's a lot of room for that to grow. I think in the VA, it's also something that's very interesting to look at group therapy. And then there's also after treatment is over, if you have groups of people that have been supporting each other and going through therapy together, there's also this kind of natural moving into peers supporting each other into the future when their therapy is over. So it's not only to me important for a cost reason, but for so many other reasons as well. Technology isn't something that we've dove into as much related to this. I would say technology right now for us in scaling is related to therapist training and that we're doing a lot more therapist training online. We also do integration visits through telemedicine. And then as far as like apps though, to support people after, for us at least, when we're doing a clinical trial, we're trying to hold as many variables steady at one time as possible. And that's really difficult to do. So adding in one more thing or one more variable that would be experimental is not something that we ha have been doing. But we will start looking at other companies that are developing apps to see if that could be supportive as part of either integration or aftercare. I do think there is room for this. It's not something that we've dove into. So changing gears here for a moment, I'm curious what your thoughts are around next gen empathogens. There seem to be companies that are forming that are making modifications to MDMA, whether that's 
modifications around the intensity or trying to make tweaks as it relates to cardio toxicity, neurotoxicity. And so I'm very curious to hear your thoughts around is MDMA 1.0 good enough? Is there room for innovation? How do you think about that? I mean, I feel like it's pretty hard to improve on MDMA. If you look at Sasha Shulgin's work, he did an awful lot of work on innovating and on what empathogens and tactogens molecules there were that were available for therapy. MDMA also has, has a very good efficacy and a very good safety profile. So we saw no major safety issues in the MDMA arm. We didn't see any increases in abuse potential, in cardiovascular risk or suicidality. We saw transient increases in blood pressure pressure. We did see some suicidal ideation changes, but they were not exacerbated in the MDMA group. It was more actually in the comparator arm. And it worked really well for people with, like I said, with different histories, dissociative subtype, childhood trauma, drug and alcohol abuse, right? So you have a pretty good drug that also all this drug development and all this preclinical work already exists on. So it's a lot of money and time to do those other pieces. So exactly what are you improving on MDMA to make it better? Some people maybe think it should be shorter, but we think there's actually a really important piece to the length of time for opening that critical period in the brain and for people to have enough time for processing and to have for the changes to take place. Like time is a factor in this. Cutting it down to two hours, would it actually be as effective? We don't think so. How about around repeated use? We don't really see any issue with a repeated dosing uh, in a, that limited way. If you're going to do it chronic intermittent, which is a, a, an actual term with FDA, you actually need more PK studies and more preclinical work. But doing something like six months or a year later doesn't really fall into that category. I had one other question on the business side around MAPS's anti-patent strategy. And it's something that I find is unique in the landscape of companies that are now forming in the space. So can you speak to the strategy or the anti-strategy, if you will? Yeah, this has been something that Rick really felt strongly about from the beginning. And part of it was because 20 some years ago, <laughs> I don't know exact dates, but there was a lot of work that was starting on Ibogaine and there was patents that were formed. And then there was arguments that happened and it completely stopped innovation in Ibogaine for a good amount of time. Rick saw that happen and he hired the patent attorney that worked on those patents to create an anti-patent strategy for us. And because MDMA is something that has been around for a long time, we felt it's really important that this stays transparent, open science, and that we don't try to create patents and block people. We're not against patents, especially when there's new and innovative work that's really innovative, right? Like it costs a lot of money to do this work and people should be able to protect that and have a profit from that, but not in such a way that it blocks research. And then we'll have a five years of data exclusivity. So though people usually have much longer, you know, you, you use up some of your patent life during your drug development time, but you usually have more than five years by the time you get approval. But this program was created during the Reagan administration to encourage people to study drugs that were off patent. And so that's, we'll be able to take advantage of that. We should probably have about six years of kind of protected time where somebody else could develop MDMA, but they wouldn't be able to use our data in the way that generics can use and kind of piggyback on what you've done. 
We have to really get commercialization right, though, if we want to become a sustainable organization. Because when you have a patent, you can kind of have a slower ramp up and you can mess it up in the first year or two and then become profitable and still have a good amount of time. We have to do this quickly and still put public benefit above profit. You mentioned that the danger with patents is to stall innovation. Is your perspective that that's happening today? And I guess the broader questions, what do you think of the state of the industry? Um, yeah, boy, the state of the industry is that it has changed really rapidly and I can't keep up with it. You guys probably know more than I do. And it's scary to me. I, it's scary to me in that I see a lot of people jumping in and it's a little bit how the cannabis industry went and how tech is gone and it becomes really competitive and people aren't really placing public benefit, which I feel like should just be the, the model is, you know, when you're developing a new treatment, public benefit should always come first. And I don't see that always happening. And I do see some, you know, when you are beholden to your shareholders, you need to make them a profit. You are going to make decisions that are not the decisions we have to make by being independent and being held by a nonprofit. And I'm really grateful for that. I understand decisions that have to get made, but I am not a fan of some of the th patents that have been coming out recently, though I understand the need for them. And I understand the need for shareholder value. I think our obligation to the industry and to these medicines is to show that you can do this a little bit differently. And you can share with stakeholders and you can have reciprocity and you can have public access and you can still be sustainable. Beautiful. Okay, we'd like to do some rapid fire questions covering potentially more personal stuff. You, you have a tattoo in your arm of yes. a chemical structure. <laughs> what is that? It's MDMA. <laughs> do you have equity in the Public Benefit Corporation? No. Does anyone? No, only MAPS. Why did you spend 20 years at MAPS? So good stories a lot of times start in funny ways, right? So I was at Burning Man <laughs> for one of, in the late 90s. And my husband and I were listening to Larry Harvey talking about how Burning Man was losing money. And as we're like listening to him talking about the next year and what the organization needed to do, we were picking up garbage. So moop, matter out of place. And my husband picked up this flyer that was for the Mind States Conference in Berkeley. And we lived in Berkeley, Oakland area at that time. And he was like, oh, look at this. This is like a psychedelic conference. And so, and it was happening the next week. So we got home from Burning Man and we went to this conference. And we had had our own personal experiences with psychedelics that I felt were really valuable. And because I was already working in drug development, I couldn't help but in the back of my mind think, wow, these are really important tools that people should be able to use. But it never really occurred to me that drug development could happen with them. I just didn't really think about it. So we went to this Mind States conference, met this entire incredible community of people, both looking at the social aspects, the art, and all of the research and not and the research that had been done in the past, but also talking about how research, how could it be done in the future and not just the type of research that NIDA did which is only looking at harms, right? And that's where a lot of the literature had come from. And the more recent literature on MDMA was looking through NIDA researchers and looking more at the harms. Not anything really in a specific indication. So at one of these conferences, these Mind States conferences that would happen periodically, I, I heard Rick get up and speak about wanting to start um, MDMA research in humans for a medical purpose. So in an actual indication, and he wanted to do it as a nonprofit drug company. And I looked at my soon-to-be husband and I was like, I just had this moment of super clarity and I looked at him and I said, 
I have to help him do this. And in my head, I could just see that this pathway was possible. I understood the regulatory pathway of drug development. I'd worked in vaccine research for a long time, HIV research before that. And um, I really liked working in public health. And it just was this moment of real clarity for me that this was something that I understood the benefits because of my own personal experience. And in that moment, I could really see that what Rick was saying was possible. And my only hope was that he didn't already have a bunch of people that thought it was as cool as I did that had already offered to help him. And uh, I was like, oh, I've got to send in my resume. And so when I sent it, I was kind of like, you probably have a lot of people that have already offered you this, but I understand drug development. I work in pharma and I really want to help you. And uh, lo and behold, nobody else had offered him that before from pharma. (laughs) And so uh, that was how I got involved. And I think because of that moment of clarity, when I was listening to him, I really never turned back. I always have felt it was possible as though it's gotten difficult at times and taken longer and been more expensive. It was always clear to me that we could do things just like any other pharma company could do. That if we made it look just like what FDA expects to see, and we designed it in the same way as any other program, that we could do this. Okay, a few more. What is the biggest misunderstanding about MDMA? Well, hopefully this isn't one anymore, but the fun one is that it causes holes in your brain. (laughs) It's like, that's absolutely not true. What are the differences between working in big pharma and working at MAPS PVC? I can make decisions much more quickly. <laughs> and I have a lot less money. <laughs> How will MDMA therapy change the world? I hope that we can interrupt a lot of the trauma that's out there, interrupt multi-generational trauma and move towards not just treating trauma, but to more mass mental health. What I appreciate about MAPS is that they're pioneering a new therapy while also pioneering a new business model. And the business model to me is super interesting in that they have this nonprofit, they have the for-profit entity, all the profits from the for-profit entity go back into the nonprofit to then fund more research. And it's just a really cool model that is distinct from just about every other company in this space and also really companies outside of this industry across any industry. I love that. It's cool. Yeah. Speak of long-term thinking, these guys have been going at it for 30 years. And what a contrast with pretty much any other company in the space or in basically any other industry. Their protocol assessment took them six extra months. They ran an unusually big number of phase two trials. They took their time to get this right. At the same time, there's all these unknowns, right? We don't know what the price for the drug will be, what the price for the therapy will be. Are there going to be enough therapists? Is this going to be covered by insurance? How much? So we're seeing the psychedelic renaissance unfold in real time. I'm also happy that we talked about the topic of psychedelics for kids. And I say this because, Matthias, you've actually shared this idea with me a few times over the years. And Amy's the first person I've spoken with who is, seems not only open to this idea, but has a seems to be a plan in the next few years for testing out its effects. And so how did talking about that make you feel? I felt validated. Finally, someone that doesn't think it's the most ridiculous idea ever. This is Business Trip a podcast about psychedelic entrepreneurship. 
If you like this episode, you can help us by subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review. I'm your host, Greg Kubin. Business Trip is created by me and Matthias Serebrinski. Producer and editor is Jonathan Davis. Sound design and engineering came from Zach Frank. Our theme music is by Dorian Love and additional music credits are in the show notes. This is Business Trip. Thanks for tripping with us. We'll see you next time. Feels like a good time in the conversation for us to change gears to talk business. business. I feel like it's pretty hard to improve on MDMA. Talk. DEA, FDA, MDMA, MDMA, DEA, FDA, MDMA, MDMA. 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 We're going to need some rapid fire questions. MDMA. Rapid fire questions. Rapid fire questions. Rapid fire questions. In case people don't know, it's pretty hard to improve on MDMA. 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 Um, anything else? Anything else? No, I think, uh, yeah. I think My mind is blown. <laughs> My mind is beautiful. <laughs> My mind is blown. <laughs> nice. All right, and cut.